The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schnebly and Toth. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of The Shallow End. I'm Jethro Gilligan-Toth from uh, the Box of Oddities podcast. And Lindsay Schnebly, my co-host, also from the Box of Oddities, he is the voice of the curator. And it still surprises me that so many people thought that you, all these years, had been the voice of the curator. Well, I still get uh, messages. People have listened to The Shallow and they go, I, th- I didn't realize you were two guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm flattered that they think that I sound like you. I was actually deeply offended. <laughs> <laughs> As well you should have been, sir. I was like, don't you know? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> oh, my God. But I'm glad we were able to clear it all up. And I'm sure that being the voice of the, cur- of the curator has just, well, added jet fuel to your career. Jet fuel and... Um, Untold riches. I actually, uh, I actually, from time to time, have to throw away wads of cash. I've shared with our listeners on numerous occasions that we we've been very fortunate to have you assist us, and that you never ask for anything. So just randomly, I'll send your dog presents. It's a win-win because my dog is absolutely over the moon for you guys. <laughs> well, we love Sally. So uh, tis the season, you know, for uh, it being summer. Get-togethers, back you, backyard barbecues, things like that. And a while back, I, uh, I had, I'm a member of a Facebook group for the the neighborhood in which we live. It's it's called mm-hmm. a closed group, and it's right. You know, people post things about I'm having a yard sale. I need a uh, I need a plumber. Does anyone have a recommendation for sprinkler repair? That kind of thing. I need a <laughs> shovel to bang on my ex lover's back door because I don't want to go down the chimney. And a step ladder. And a few weeks ago, I was at a uh, a birthday party for a guy uh, up the street who actually is a subscriber to this podcast and uh, is wow. a huge a huge fan of both the box of oddities and the shallow end oh that's nice <clears throat> guy named brad curry who's also a, a, a good friend and i was in uh, brad's backyard for a uh, get-together by invitation i should point out unlike most of the <laughs> <laughs> 
social interaction right. I have in the neighborhood. That's why you need that stepladder. <laughs> exactly. I had seen on Facebook that a woman who was going to be at this party was a box of oddities uh subscriber she had it oh. on her facebook page she had listed i think she, i think she had checked uh box of oddities as a as a like and a subscriber so i see this woman uh in brad's backyard and i go up to her and introduce myself and say hey i i noticed that you're a a box of oddities subscriber and she said yes and I said, well, you, this might surprise you, but uh, I'm actually the voice of the curator on that podcast. And she looks at me and smiles and says, oh, yeah, I, I've, I've never listened to the podcast. I just subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I just got coffee up my nose. A little taken aback, but I said, well, if, if you ever decide to listen, I think you might actually enjoy it. Wow. You know, they're, they're approaching 500 episodes. They must be doing something, right? We were just talking this morning. We just, the little download clicker cleared 19 million total downloads on the Box of Oddities. What? We are so grateful for that. God bless you guys. Well, if you're like me, and I know you are, then uh, you'd probably agree that there are very fewer subjects that are funnier than ones that involve Nazis and malfunctioning toilets. Mm. I know. I know what you're saying to yourself right now. Oh, sure, JG, there's nothing funnier than a story about a Nazi and a malfunctioning toilet, but I'm going to elevate this. I'm going to take this to the next level. Of course you are, because this is how you roll. (laughs) I'm going to add to that scenario something that makes it even funnier. This is a story involving a Nazi, a malfunctioning toilet, but the malfunctioning toilet is in an underwater World War II era U-boat. Wow. Yep. This is the trifecta of stories. <laughs> it has everything. It was Saturday, April 14th, <laughs> 1945. Now, I just had the date, but I, I asked um, Alexa. Oops, never mind. Um, <laughs> what day of the week it was, because I wanted you to, to feel like you were there. And it's funny how when you say Saturday, it automatically, it's like, okay, well, now there's a weekend sort of feel on the U-boat. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a partly cloudy day. German U-boat captain Carl Adolf Schlitt was commanding the German U-boat, the U-1206. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking a toilet malfunction with a captain whose last name is Schlitt. This has got to be ripe with comedic potential. This is comedy with a K. So the U-boat was operating just off the Aberdeenshire coast near Scotland. It was a very high-tech vessel, state-of-the-art in its day. U-boats were actually named Unterseeboot, which literally means undersea boat. Yes. I love German. It was considered to be, at the time, an apex predator. And indeed, it was the pride of the Nazi Navy. It was able to stealthily move about undetected, only to surprisingly surface and unleash its devastating firepower on enemy targets. These were brutal. This was technology also that had been uh, in the making for a while. In fact, it had been originally deployed during World War I. U-boats not only had a history of targeting military vessels, but also targeting civilian vessels during wartime with equal fierceness bastards. During the Second World War, U-boats were mainly deployed near the transatlantic shipping routes to uh, destroy ships, bringing allies much needed war supplies. And they were fierce. They were capable of taking down ships up to 20 times larger than they were. That's amazing. 
These newer updated U-boats, like the one that he is commanding, the Type VIIC sub, as they were known, was a massive destruction machine. It had two anti-aircraft guns, five torpedo tubes, wow, and much more firepower. Now, this particular ship, the U-1206, was brand spanking new. It had just rolled off the dry docks in Norway. It had that new U-boat smell. Don't you just love the smell of a new U-boat? <laughs> Back to that Saturday morning, April 14th, in 1945, that day, the U-1206 was operating at a depth of about 200 feet when toilet tragedy struck. Uh-oh. Nazi Captain Karl Adolf Schlitt apparently had consumed way too much strudel the night before and needed to unburden his bowels. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I'm sure in his mind, the fact that this was a brand new state-of-the-art vessel, he would have... He'd have a successful trip to the bathroom that, that he wouldn't have any issues. It's a brand new, brand new toilet. What could go wrong, right? This boat boasted the latest inseptic handling. <laughs> After each day, the waste disposal system would release its accumulated load directly into the sea instead of storing it in an onboard tank, which was the older design. Hmm. And I imagine after several weeks at sea with this older design at the depth of 200 feet in a nearly full septic tank, things can get a little uncomfortable. I would think so. But not only would this design make living conditions more bearable for the crew on board, but there also would be no heavy septic tank weighing them down. It would make them more agile. Now, I'm sure that Captain Schlitt was bursting with pride over the giant technological leap forward in Nazi feces disposal engineering uh -huh. as he closed the door and dropped his pants and then sat down. Now, since there was nobody in the bathroom but him, of course, there were no eyewitnesses. So there are varying descriptions of what happened next. But one thing that we know for certain, after Captain Schlitt was finished pinching off a schnitzel, Things turned badly in a hurry. Now, because this was brand new technology, in fact, it was the first time Captain Schlitt had employed it, uh, he was a tad uncertain of how to operate it. Uh, that's right, the captain of the Nazi U-boat was not familiar with the proper underwater waste elimination launch protocol. Hmm. Because the system was so new, crew members had been required to attend a training session on how to operate it. But it appears as though Schlitt didn't attend the training session. The toity training session? Yeah. I'm sure somebody called him on it. I'm sure somebody said, Herr Schlitt, I trust you have uh, undertaken the training for the waste disposal. And Schlitt was all, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing German accent. <laughs> so... One version of the story goes like this. Once he'd finished squeezing off a bratwurst, um, he couldn't figure out how to flush it. So he called for assistance and an engineer showed up. Now, the engineer apparently missed the briefing as well and wasn't sure how to operate the waste elimination valve. And when dealing with the disposal of black water, the last phrase you want to hear is, turning the wrong valve. Mm. But that's exactly what, what the engineer allegedly did. Oh, boy. Instead of sucking out the excrement and shooting it into the ocean, seawater began to come up through the toilet, filling of the bathroom course. not only with seawater, but with the accumulated feces. Oof. 
Now that's one version of the story. The other version of the story, Captain Schlitt says it wasn't his fault. Uh, he had simply tried to flush the toilet by himself without aid of any engineer, and apparently it just backed up. The thought was that uh, even though the flushing system worked at the service, maybe at lower depths it wouldn't function properly. Either way, it was a catastrophic waste elimination system failure. Now, history dictates that the environment of these U-boats, they were unpleasant in the best of circumstances. Well, yeah. Think of who they're filled with. There you go. Exactly. They smelled like Nazis, diesel fume, <laughs> sweat, and body odor. But now let's factor in fecal matter. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, no. As horrifying... <laughs> The idea of being submerged in a U-boat with sweat, body odor, diesel fume, and turds floating about it. Nazi turds. It was about to get worse. No, because you said it was about to get worse. Uh, oh, no. And in my head, I heard a bunch of uh, very uh, effeminate men going, nine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. It appears that the bathroom that Captain Schlitt had chosen on his maiden voyage, so to speak, uh, was right above the U-boat battery compartment. So as the poop water overflowed, it overflowed into the battery compartment, causing chlorine gas to be released. Oh, my gosh. Oof. So at this point, there was only one option as water toxic fumes and turds continued to flood into the U-boat, the only solution was to race to the surface as quickly as possible. Of now, course. to expedite the ascent to the surface, they had to fire off all of their missiles to lighten the load and, load. <laughs> and increase, increase their buoyancy <laughs> to get them to the surface as quickly as possible. But that's not the end of the story either, because after the U-boat broke the surface and bobbed to the top, it found itself in the middle of uh, several Allied battleships who immediately began to fire on them. So, <laughs> so here was Schlitt and his crew in a crippled U-boat with no torpedoes, quickly filling up with seawater, poisonous gas, not to mention rogue Nazi turds. Captain <laughs> Schlitt had no option but to abandon U-1206. Now, approximately 50 of the crew members were immediately taken prisoners of war. Ten got away initially, but were later captured. Uh, when the news of this reached the British, they dubbed it the Great German Shit Wreck. <laughs> this, of course, was toward the end of World War II and had little consequence in the outcome of the war. It's just hilarious to know that a Nazi <clears throat> captain's poop actually sunk his own ship. In the 1970s, the wreck of the U-1206 was discovered by underwater oil pipe workers. Um, they were the first people in decades that saw the ship that was sent to its watery grave with one fatal flush. Wow. My source information was Smithsonian, a wonderful article by Mental Floss written by Ken Osea Jr. and History. Don't you love it when, when Nazis take themselves down? What's the German phrase for instant karma? <laughs> I don't know, but Kat knows the German word for shit. Scheiße. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. So there you go. <laughs> I uh, was in Germany for about three weeks, and I mostly picked up words for food and swears. Yeah, swear words. Yeah. yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. 
This kind of reminds me of a story we did on Box of Oddities about uh, people in uh, Austria who caught a giant catfish. And this thing was something like nine feet long. It was huge. It was world record setting. And it was estimated to be upwards toward 80, 90, 100 years old. Holy cow. And so they, they wanted to have it mounted to have it you know, taxidermied and, and prepared for sure. display. <clears throat> and while they were doing that, they found human bones inside the fish. And it appeared as though the human bones were that of a white male, middle-aged, and probably had been in there since the 1940s. And then they found Nazi medals in there, too. So, apparently, during some battle, a Nazi jumped off a bridge, or maybe he was shot and fell in the water, and then he was eaten by a catfish and then shit out. Nice. Yeah. Take that, Nazis. Hey, I'm Mike from Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm in the shallow end with Schneebly and Todd. If you feel like you're not taking enough medication, it might be a warning sign. Maybe new Relaxa is for you. Relaxa is a highly addictive and dangerous medication that does absolutely nothing good. But in certain studies, it helped patients who simply needed another pill to keep on their nightstand. Relaxa was proven to worsen overall health in most patients. And since it's not covered by insurance, it's priced to be almost unaffordable. Side effects are numerous and troublesome. They include the inability to form a coherent sentence at cocktail parties, putting your shoes on the wrong feet, and the compulsion to call everyone you meet Mr. Rocketship. Other side effects may be an obsession with cold guts, liking any song by Kenny G, and thinking balloon animals are real and need adoption. If you experience any of these side effects, call your doctor and pretend to be someone else. Women who are pregnant may become pregnant or know anyone who has ever been pregnant should not take Relaxa. New twice daily, Relaxa. If you cannot afford your medication, certain drug companies may provide financial assistance. Just not us. Ask your doctor if Relaxa is right for you. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please wait an hour after eating before listening to this podcast. You're in the shallow end with Schnebly and Toth. You can send us uh, story ideas or messages. Uh, you can email us. The website has all the information. The sh- website is shallowendpodcast.com. You can go there, find our email address, or you can uh, hit up any of our social media sites, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Jasmine sent this in. Just finished the third episode of The Shallow End. I absolutely love it, by the way. And at the end, the woman states, this offer void in Fort Kent, Maine. It's one of the commercials that that ran in there. She said, I listen to it as I sit in Fort Kent, Maine. I lost my shit. Wow. This will totally be my high when we do high-low buffalo tonight around the dinner table. We do high-low buffalo. What High-low buffalo? High-low buffalo. It's like when I ask you at the end of the day what your high point was oh, oh, and your okay. low point of the day. That's wonderful, Jasmine. So and, that's the uh, first documented uh, or at least listener-reported uh, boo effect in the shallow end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to come up with a name for that because we had another email. Somebody had uh, a similar situation. They said, what do we call boo effects or box of oddity effects in, in the shallow end? So we have to give that some uh, some thought, I think. I vote boo effect. <laughs> just, just keep just easier. We don't have to change the stationery. I mean, it is it is a box of oddities production, so uh, I guess that's fair. You know, yeah. All right, yeah. What's your story today? Well, this is uh, this is cool to me because this is the first story that I have done that was actually listener suggested. Cool. Nice. Uh, a uh, very good friend of mine who actually uh, goes to my church. A a, a fantastic writer, a guy named Tom Hofarth. Uh, suggested this, and I just thought it was it was absolutely perfect. So sit back and dig this story. The movie could open with John Jennings and Paul Rosenbluth casually walking into a bank. Jennings, the taller of the two, six foot three inches, sports a military crew cut. He's nicely dressed in an Ivy League business suit, black rimmed sunglasses. He points a thirty-eight caliber revolver at the teller. Now, Rosenbluth, the shorter, stockier one, he stands 5'7", leaps over the counter, cleans out the money drawer with a white canvas sack. No shots fired, no one gets hurt. The two walk out calmly before anyone in the building even knows what's going on, and their getaway car is parked right in front. This sounds like a screenplay treatment. It does, Um, doesn't it? Bank, interior, midday. (laughs) Exactly. So let's back up here. This is 1963, and we're in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. Do they still say gag me with a spoon there? <laughs> I think you're the only one that is stuck on that phrase, but I'm, I'm sure they do. You know what? I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, well, of course, Jethro. Everybody says it out here. Mm-hmm. You Californians. Decades yeah. later, that's still so popular. So we're in the San Fernando Valley, 1963, and... Uh, guy named Rick Dempsey's playing he's 14 years old he's playing little league with the Woodland Hills All-Stars and yes that is the same Rick Dempsey who would go on to be part of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers 1988 World Series championship team I was gonna say that name sounds familiar yeah this team was really something special in fact six of these kids on this little league team the Woodland Hills All-Stars would go on to play major league ball six 
Wow. That's crazy. Six guys. Robin Yount, his big brother Larry mm-hmm. Yount among, uh, among them. John Jennings is their coach. And John Jennings was the quintessential Little League coach. He loved big cigars. He loved baseball. He loved kids. His players just adored him. And he paid a lot of the expenses for these kids on the team. If they couldn't afford cleats or gloves, anything, oh, he, would, he would buy it for them. Now, he's an insurance agent. He's doing pretty well. And the parents of the kids on the team uh, adored him as well. In fact, they would invite him to weekly poker games. Hmm. And about the same time that he starts coaching this team, there's a string of, uh, of six bank robberies in neighboring cities. First one happens in Silmar, uh, northern part of L.A. County. Two robbers, one tall, one thin. I'm, I'm sorry, one tall and thin, the other short and stocky. They, in this first Silmar robbery, they got just under nine grand, which would be $81,000 today. Not a bad day's work. Not a bad day's work for a, a few minutes' work. Again in Silmar, a second robbery, $33,000, which would be a three hundred and twenty thousand dollars today so here's where the media starts to pick up on this they they get interested clearly it's this same duo one tall one short that are doing these robberies and the press nicknames them the mutt and jeff bandits (laughs) and uh anyone who's never heard the phrase mutt and jeff google it and you'll see that it's one of the uh one of the very first comic strips Uh, in America. Dates back to around 1910 or something like that. Very, very early. I think it was my freshman year. (laughs) Oh, I see. Is is one of them, does one of them talk about hamburgers? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I recognize that. So the team is now playing at its first tournament uh, up in Lancaster, California. And uh, John, the coach, has a son named Steve. He's the catcher for the team. And Steve's best friend is a guy named Bruce Davis. And Bruce is the shortstop for the team. And they're driving to Lancaster. And during this drive through the desert, Bruce remembers John, the coach, turning to the kids and saying, boys, there's treasure buried in the desert. And one day you're going to know all about it. And hmm. I think, well, that's kind of kind of curious. So now we're in, we're in Lancaster. It's the first day of the tournament. And people in the stands... A couple hours before the game actually starts, people are starting to, to file in, and they're talking about a bank robbery that happened before the game. Kids and their parents, meanwhile, are talking about how nice it was for Coach Jennings to pick up the tab for the team's meals and hotel rooms in now, Lancaster. Again, very, very generous coach. Were these uh, small, unmarked bills that he paid the... Uh... <laughs> we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of you. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Inquisitive minds are impressive. Now, the third baseman for a team is, is a kid named Terry Hankins, and his dad is actually an LAPD detective who is put in charge of investigating these bank robberies. <laughs> and uh, Detective Hankins actually plays poker with John uh, Jennings, the, the coach. So they're, they're actually friends. They're, they're, they're poker buddies. Two more robberies that July, middle of the season, one in Anaheim in Orange County for $25,000. That'd be two hundred and fifty grand in today's economy. One in Burbank for twenty-seven grand. that would be $270,000 today. So here's how bold 
the coach Jenkins was. One night he's playing poker with the LAP detective Hankins, who's investigating these bank robberies. And Jenkins, the, the coach, is losing big time at this poker game. Now, he, for some reason, he always had a briefcase with him, and he pulls out <laughs> his ever-present briefcase, pulls out a wad of cash, and it's still got the paper wrappers around in a, it. In a dye pack? <laughs> <laughs> and he holds up the wad of cash to Detective Hankins and says, hey, does this look familiar? Oh, no. No, he didn't. He did, and Hankins is kind of scratching his head like, I, I don't know what that means. Why, why would you say that? Well, by now, the All-Stars are undefeated, and they are in uh, a Western Division playoff just outside of San Diego. There have been recent robberies in Encino, Reseda, Van Nuys, Northridge, all the same M.O. It's clearly the same Mutt and Jeff bandits. But it's important to find that, to, to, to point out that nobody has ever been hurt during these robberies. No tellers, mm. no customers, bank managers, no injuries to everybody. These guys are extremely bold, but they're polite. They're in and out, and nobody's hurt. Well, the team is doing so well that they get invited to Little League, Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And again, the coach, John Jennings, says to the parents and kids, hey, this is on me. I've got your hotel and airline tickets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, amazingly, the All-Stars lost that first game to a team from Indiana. But returning to L.A., they get a hero's welcome at the airport. There are amusement park visits. They're even honored at Dodger Stadium during a doubleheader. And they even got to take part in a pregame ceremony in World Series game between the Dodgers and and the Yankees that year. Now, the kids are back in school, but the bank robberies are continuing. There's one in in Tarzana in, in the San Fernando Valley. A guy named Randy Cohen is the team's star pitcher, and he actually remembers his father, Howard, being asked by Coach Jennings to help him secure a loan. So Randy Cohen remembers going to this Tarzana branch of the Bank of America with his dad mm-hmm. and Coach Jennings to meet the manager. And it's the same bank that Jennings would rob just three months later. <laughs> so Cohen remembers sitting there with his coach oh, wow. and, his, and his dad and the bank manager Said, because by this time, every bank in the area has got police artist sketches of, of these Mutt and Jeff bank robbers right. from witness reports. And, and their faces are all over the place. So Randy Cohen, the star pitcher, is sitting there and he says, this is absolutely true. We're in the bank and the bank manager says to my dad and Coach Jennings, so you've heard about all these robberies around the valley, right? And right in front of the manager on the desk are two drawings of Coach Jennings and his, his accomplice Rosenbluth. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've, we've heard about it. So weird. But That's nobody so puts strange. anything together. Two more robberies go down. Culver City, Gardena, a month apart. So maybe it wasn't a coincidence that after, remember the team had won their first 12 games and then they lost the 13th game? Yes. Well, the Mutt and Jeff robbers had been successful in their first 12 bank robberies, but robbery number 13 is where things fall apart. Oh. November 4th, 
1963. It's the Bank of America in Panorama City. They get away with 20K, which would be 200 grand today. So what goes wrong this time? Well, someone outside the bank notices Rosenbooth leap over a fence two blocks from the bank crime scene as the two are changing cars. Guy writes down the license plate, gives it to police, and boom, it's over. Van Nuys News and Valley Green Sheet announced the arrest that day of the counter-jumper bank bandit team. <laughs> it's reported to the FBI agents. Van Nuys detectives and officers from Central Division stormed the plush offices of Jennings and Rosenbluth, and the guys are counting the cash from their latest heist. <laughs> one for you, one for me. Money for you. everywhere, on the tables, in the wastebasket, on the windowsill. It's just stacked everywhere. <laughs> and the headlines that follow. Businessmen jailed in 13 bank holdups. The wives and kids have been oblivious to what was going on. Jennings, the coach, ends up telling the police, you know, business was very bad. I had to lie to my wife several times. She began to wonder where all the money was coming from. I told her I sold some stocks. And remember when the team had been driving to Lancaster through the desert and Jennings had said to, hey, boys, there's treasure buried in the desert. One day you're going to know all about it. Bruce Davis would later say he was telling us some history. The treasure he was talking about was his own. Sure enough, we saw him on television. He's right there with his Mutt and Jeff buddy showing the authorities where he had stashed the money. They had netted in these series of robberies $150,000 in 1963. That would be just shy of $1.5 million wow. today. Wow. Wow, wow. wow. And he was still able to uh, to lead them to a Little League World Series berth. Yeah, that's, so that's that's multitasking, isn't it? Jennings and Rosenbluth have a preliminary hearing, ironically, November 22nd, 1963, the same day that John Kennedy is, is shot. They get sentenced to December 17th of 1963. Jennings served his time at Terminal Island Prison in L.A. and then in McNeil Island, Washington, before he was granted parole after only seven and a half years. Wow. Dies of cancer in 1986. Rosenbluth, meanwhile, his accomplice, eventually moves to Las Vegas. And according to family members, in 1991, jailed again for a Bank of America robbery in Pasadena. A year later after that, connected to another robbery in Thousand Oaks. We have no idea what happened to him after that. But Davis, no Bruce Davis, that kid in the back seat, tried to make contact with Jennings after his release, but never connected with him and told the Baltimore Sun newspaper that he believed the ex-Marine, quote, was a failure in everything he had done. The only thing he'd been successful in had been the two things he loved most, baseball and robbing banks. (laughs) He decides to take the kids to to the Pennsylvania World Series and bank robbing was kind of was kind of a whim. Wow. My thanks to writer Tom Hofarth, who, uh, who wrote this story and, um, <laughs> and actually sent it as a story suggestion. That's, that that's amazing. Wonderful. What a great story that is. Yeah. It reminds me of the guy. There's a guy in a bank. I think it was in, uh, I want to say New Jersey, but I'm not sure. He walks in to rob the bank. And uh, he, he goes over to the little station like he's filling out a deposit. 
and he comes over and he lays the deposit slip down and it says on the deposit i have a gun give me your money and they do they comply and he takes the money and leaves the mistake he made was he wrote this wrote the note on his own deposit slip that <laughs> included his name address and phone number oh okay so you should just save that for for an episode because yeah, that's I, delightful sure yeah that was a bonus story just poor <laughs> bastard <laughs> poor bastard that was uh that was quite a ride wow my friend. again a big thank you to the people who uh not only follow this podcast but send in story ideas because um that's a that's uh, helpful that's a very yeah, helpful thing and we appreciate we thank you in advance for any story ideas you might have send them send them on in go to our website shallowendpodcast.com uh, all of our contact information is right there social media as well as our email address and uh, we love doing this and thank you so much for supporting this uh, little project that we have it's like going back to when we were 10 years old camped out in a tent listening to the all-star game on a transistor radio Aww. <laughs> remember those transistor uh, radios first one i bought was four dollars cost me four dollars <laughs> i paid 4.99 for mine from sears of course, yeah. today that'd be like $8 million in I money. I still remember sitting on the curb of my parents' house in Tucson and waiting for my dad to come home from Sears with the, uh, with the radio. <laughs> I'd saved <laughs> up money, and I had, I had saved up $5. It was the first time I'd ever saved for something. And he got out of the car and handed me this box, and it was a Sears transistor radio. Only AM. I couldn't afford AM, FM. They hadn't invented uh, FM when I got my (laughs) (laughs) AM transistor radio. Pulling the age card, are we, JG? Question, how did you earn the money? How did you earn five bucks at that young age? Uh, I believe I got an allowance of, wait for it, 25 cents a week. There you go. And when you're that age, uh, saving a quarter and, you know, immediately not running to the dime store... (laughs) <laughs> to buy something that was uh that was a morale builder i didn't have the patience that you did um i got into uh, mail hooking uh, when i <laughs> i got my radio faster than you yeah yeah i thought you were gonna say i didn't have the patience so i stole it i robbed a bank <laughs> yeah. robbed a bank uh we should go through the sears catalog that we have and see if we can find the transistor Ooh. radios she bought me cat bought me uh for christmas a 1973 sears wish book I remember the wish book. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going through it and I found the exact same electric guitar that I bought when I was just a How cool kid. is that? I remember circling it in that catalog with a big arrow that said, I want that uh, for my for my <laughs> mom and dad to find. Do you remember what it cost? $88. Wow. Yeah. That's a chunk it of was change a, back then. It was man. a knockoff of like a Gibson SG. Okay. The kind that Angus Young plays uh, yeah. with ACDC. 88 bucks. 88 bucks. Well, you can't draw in this one because it's an antique. Kat, did you find that on uh, on the Ebays? On the Ebays. Yes. Yep. Sweet. I still pull it out and, and thumb through it sometimes at night. It's just fun. And yeah. how about the catalog? hey <laughs> All right. That's a good note to end this. Uh, we'll, we'll see you guys next time. Make good choices. Your life might depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toph. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast. Give these boys a five-star rating and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online 
at shallowendpodcast.com. All content copyright 2022. Misuse of this podcast may result in serious injury or even death. Follow all label directions. This offer void in Fort Kent, Maine and Tucson, Arizona. And parts of Orlando. Don't ask. Just trust us. Okay, gotta go.